I don't know about you, but sometimes as pastors, we can get a little selfish. That prayer that we just did, um, it really, in a sense, was a prayer for me as well. Because I don't know about you, but I find myself in this season almost every year telling myself, Rick, just slow down, just slow down, just slow down. And I'm kind of preaching to myself as if I know exactly how to do that. And the honest truth is, it seems like every year, instead of slowing down, we do what? We speed up, right? Things get more complicated. They get more stressful. And, and I, I'm telling you, I was, I was, Thanksgiving is no longer Thanksgiving. I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it. And when I was growing up, Thanksgiving was that time we all pointed to as a family and my cousins, and we all gathered, and we got around that, that kitchen table, and we told story after story. And one of my greatest memories is hearing my dad and his brother, my uncle, tell stories about when they were teenagers. And hearing my grandmother say, oh, you guys need to stop because you had little ears like us. And they were telling us all the crazy things they did as teenagers. And I'm going, man, that was pretty cool that you went into a pumpkin patch and you, you, you got their pumpkins and you were shot at with rock salt. I'm going, man, that was pretty cool. And then, no, that's not cool. And I can remember those days. And to be honest with you, Christmas wasn't even mentioned yet. Now we know that Thanksgiving, all it is today, in most sense, it's, it's the, the precursor to all the Christmas activities, right? So we have Black Friday in which we are busy and we're shopping. Um, we have Christmas music starting like in July in 96.5 and we have that and it's almost life gets so fast and so hurried that we forget many times of what to be thankful for during the season. So I want you to know today I want us to take a breath. Okay, just take a breath. I want you to relax and you may have had a great week, a great month, a great year, or it may have been the worst of the worst. And I know there's people in our congregation today, this year has been the worst of the worst. The very worst of the worst. And I want you to know there's a story in the Bible I'm going to read today. And even though he messed up along the way, God gave him a purpose. To live on, to continue on, to fight on, to finish strong. And that would be the message today. It's about an encounter with God. And uh, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 in the Old Testament. And while you do that, I, there's a question I have for you. It should be in your sermon notes. And it's something we'll probably come back to at the end if we have time. But it's something certainly you can take home with you. I want you to write down things in your life that are distractions for you right now and, and could possibly hinder you from hearing God's still small voice in your life. For me, many times, writing those things down is really, really important. If you have our, our app, you can go in there. It should be on your, on your notes, sermon notes for today. I want you to write down, physically write down, some of those things in your life that truly distract you from having this relationship with a holy God that he desires. Here's some of mine. I, I just wrote some of mine down. One is this word called busyness, right? Busyness. Now, I'm a pastor, and sometimes I'll use the excuse that it's okay for me to be busy in what I'm doing because I'm doing it for who? Yeah, it's God's work, right? What I'm doing is God's work. And listen, that is so true in most instances, but it can't get in the way of my relationship with him. And by the way, many times it will. 
I'm busy doing God's work. I'm busy doing uh, what a husband should do or busy doing what a dad should do or a leader should do. In the midst of all that busyness, I lose track of who I am in Christ. Another one of mine is impatience. And this is the worst time of year to have that as a trait, right? I, I drove around at the, uh, what is the outlet malls out there, you know, at the Grand River. I drove around for 30 minutes. I dropped my family off, being the good husband that I am. And then I drove around for 30 minutes trying to find a spot. Every time I pulled in and somebody was moving out, somebody was on the other side getting into that spot. I want you to know there were some ungodly thoughts that went through my mind for those 30 minutes. I'm impatient. I'm selfish. Rick is selfish. I deal with that in my life. It's what Rick wants. I didn't get married until I was 29, so I had many years just to think about Rick. Those are things I deal with in my own heart that are distractions for me when it comes to hearing God's still small voice in my life. When you can hear clearly from God and have a true encounter with him, then you can overcome and accomplish all those things that God has desired for you in your life. I will promise you that. 1 Kings chapter 19, I've been asked sometime in the past, someone asked me, he says, he says, how often, Brother Rick, should we have an encounter with a holy God? How often? And my response was, every single day. We should have an encounter with a holy God, whether it's through his word, whether it's through prayer, whether it's gathering like this as a fellowship among believers. First Kings chapter 19. Let me give you a little bit of the backdrop, and then I've just got three quick points this morning. Here is Elijah. He is God's prophet. And just so you know, during this time, if you go back a couple chapters to the end of chapter 16 and then 17 and 18, you'll kind of see the story unfold here about Elijah. Many of God's prophets were slaughtered and killed. Some of them were hidden at this time. And so Elijah was kind of the only practicing prophet that was left in the, in, in the area, in the country. And there was a king who was appointed king over Israel. His name was Ahab. And it says near the end of chapter 16 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel. He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. He was a bad king. He married a bad queen in Jezebel. And together they were bad, all right? Bad plus bad doesn't make good. Never works. Bad plus bad just means it's even more bad. So here's this king of Israel who was the worst king that Israel had had. He had turned the nation away from God. And they were worshiping Baal and they were worshiping these other gods there. And so this is what Elijah encounters. He's the prophet to all this. And we come to chapter 17 and, and there's a famine in the land which Elijah told Ahab there's going to be a famine in the land. So he, this famine's taking place, and God tells him to, to, to leave and to go hide, and he does. And he eventually ends up in a place where God tells him to end up in this little town. And he finds this widow woman, and in the process of this, he goes lives with this widow woman and her son. Well, the widow woman had very little because there was a famine in the land. And Elijah tells her, basically, God, God has told me to come to you. And could you give me some bread? And she says, well, what I have left, I was just getting ready to prepare so my son and I can go die. 
And Elijah tells her that, no, I want you to prepare this, this, this bread for me with the flour you have. Prepare some for yourself. And I want you to know until it rains again, your flour jar and your oil jar, it will never run dry. It will never run dry. And sure enough, under leadership of God, her flour jar and her oil jar never runs dry. Miracle of God. So here's Elijah in the midst of this, before we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, and he begins to see these miracles taking place. God is using him in a very special way. Then this widow's woman dies. She dies. I mean, he dies. And, and there is this angst within the home, and what does Elijah do? He calls upon his holy God, and he raises the boy back to life. Back to life! So we see here in chapter 17 that he's seen a miracle take place. He saw this unbelievable miracle take place of a, a son who had passed away. Now he's been brought back to life. And then we come to chapter 18. So Elijah, full of confidence, God tells him, hey, summon Ahab. And they have this confrontation. They, they have this one-on-one this -on -one meeting. And basically, Elijah says, I want you to gather all of Israel. I want you to gather all the prophets of, of Baal and these other gods. Bring them all together, all 900 of them. And we'll have a showdown at Mount Carmel. So that's what happens in chapter 18. They have this huge showdown. And they take a bull and, and the prophets of Baal, these 900 other prophets of these little G, little gods. They build this, off, uh, this altar and, and they cry out to their God to consume the sacrifice. Well, in the midst of all that, Elijah, you know, he's the first trash talker in the Old Testament. And he begins to trash talk these prophets and tells them, hey, speak a little bit louder. Maybe your God isn't listening. Maybe he's falling asleep, you know. Maybe he's just not on his job. And he provokes them and they cry louder and they cut themselves and nothing happens. So what does Elijah do? He takes the other bull, cuts it up, builds this altar. He tells them to pour this water around it. So they pour this water over it and around it until the basin is full. And he calls upon our God Almighty and God consumes that thing. Just wow. You would think what would happen next would revival would take place, right? You'd think that's what would happen. And you would think that Elijah, this prophet of God, had seen enough of God work not to be afraid of anything. Well, not only did that happen, but he told Ahab, he said, listen, get ready because the rain is coming. Prophesied that the rain would come back, and it did. He's riding on cloud nine, and what happens next is we get to chapter 19. Amazing stuff here. In chapter 19, Ahab, he tells Jezebel everything that took place. So this is what Jezebel says. It says, so Jezebel in verse 2 sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me ever so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them, those other prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. And then it says this, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. Now it's easy for me to step back and go, that wouldn't have been me. There's no way if I had seen God do what he did. I mean, he allowed the flour and the oil to multiply itself for all those years. He saw him, he raised the boy from the dead. He saw God consume this sacrifice. All these things. And you know what? The nation of Israel, they didn't have revival. 
And all of a sudden, Elijah became scared for his life, and he ran. So he ran. And where did he run to? I thought this was ironic. My son, Jordan, who plays basketball in Israel, he lives in the city of Beersheba. It says, when he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. So he left this place up there by the Sea of Galilee on Mount Carmel, and he made his way to the southern largest city in all of Judah, which is Beersheba. In other words, maybe, just maybe, they won't be able to find me here. Maybe, just maybe, I can find refuge here, and Jezebel won't kill me. That's where he ran to. And while he was there, he sat down, it says, under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. Now, have you heard that before from a prophet? Remember Jonah? Right? He calls out to God to bring this fire and brimstone to destroy. And he does it. And he gets mad. He says, oh, because God, you're not going to do what I said. Then I just want to die. I just, it's better for me to die than to live. And that's exactly what Elijah did. So here's Elijah. Angel comes to him, and he's out in the wilderness just south of Beersheba. Angel comes and says, hey, man, you need to eat because you're going to be on a journey. So he starts out on a journey to Mount Horeb, where we see back in the Old Testament earlier where Moses met God on that mountain. And this is what took place, verse 8 and 9. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered the cave there and spent the night. The original, um, the original text, Hebrew text, would say the cave instead of a cave. In other words, it was the cave. Most probable the cave that Moses when it was in as well. Now, I want you to think that. So for 40 days and 40 nights, he wandered from Beersheba all the way down to Mount Horeb. Now, typically, if you walk that, which he did, it would take you around 14, 15 days. It took him 40, okay? It was kind of like the nation of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Here is Elijah. He's in the wilderness trying to find his way. It should have took him 14, 15 days. It takes him 40, 40 days and 40 nights to get there. Theologians say that Elijah, he fasted just like Moses did for those 40 days and 40 nights. He had 40 days and 40 nights to travel approximately 250 miles. If you take those 250 miles and divide it by 40 days, it comes out to about six miles per day. If he slept eight hours a day, that meant he spent 16 hours a day alone with God in his journey. If you take those 16 hours and multiply it by 40 days, that's 640 hours, listen, of God time. Of God time. What was God doing? God was purifying Elijah to have this meeting with him on the side of the mountain. When we have an encounter of God, well, I want you to know there's a, purif- a purifying that has to take place within our life. And that's what was happening to Elijah. 640 hours of God time allowed him to begin this purification, if you will. Let me put that in perspective. I think I shared this a long time ago here. According to leading sociologists, the average church member... All right, this was a few years ago. The average, now, the statistics are worse today. So I don't want us to go, hey, this sounds pretty good. The average church member will attend church less than two times per month. Okay, that statistic's even worse today. 
Also, they will spend less than 10 10 minutes per week in prayer and scripture reading. With those two variables, it would take the average church member almost 18 years to equal the hours that Elijah had spent with God during those 40 days and 40 nights. Think about it. It would take the average church member 18 years to accomplish what he did in 40 days. See, the problem with most of us is that we don't spend enough time with God to ever hear him speak. See, during those 250 miles and those 40 days and 40 nights with God, he was purifying Elijah. And purifying is the refining and it reminds us of what we are. When you and I become purified or we're going through the purification process, it reminds us of what we are. What is Rick? Man, I'm a sinner. That's what I am. God's grace has erased that from my life so I can have this communion, this fellowship with the Holy God. It doesn't mean that I'm sinless for the rest of my life. That that's what I am. I'm a sinner. And purifying is a refining and it reminds us of what we are. It prepares you to hear the truth. God was preparing Elijah to hear the truth on that mountainside when he finally got there. Here's what it says in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. If you continue with me, if you continue to walk with me, if you're in my word, If we have supplication together, if we're communing together, mm, then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. So this purifying prepares you to hear the truth, and that purifying also prepares you for testing and trials that's going to take place in your life. I love the book of James. Read it, five chapters. It's easy. It's practical. It's about life and living life. In James 1, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, Whenever you face trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. As you go through trials, as you go through junk in your life, you can look at it from one of two perspectives. Either woe is me, and my world has come crashing down, or what is God trying to tell me during this time? Elijah, what is this holy God trying to tell you during this time? Because it should make you mature and complete, whole, one translation will say, whole, complete, and lacking in nothing. So you have a purifying that takes place, and then when you have an encounter to God, there's a purging that will take root within your life. Purging is the elimination of that which is impure, And it reminds us of what we've done. As God begins to purge me from my sin and my distractions I talked about in my life, what it reminds me of is what we've done, what I've done. How did I get here? Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, Then he said, Go out and stand stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. So this is what God's telling him to do. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains, was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that wind. And the wind, and after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle or his cloak and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Every time you come into the presence of a holy God, it will reveal something about your life. Here's, here's Elijah. He's on that mountainside. He had journeyed for 40 days and 40 nights, and God had begun this purifying process in Elijah's life. This unbelief is with you, this lack of faith, when he should have been all about who God was because he saw God do mighty things. And this purging begins to take root within his life. And he asked Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, my intent, the original plan, wasn't for you to come to this mountain. So what are you doing here? Why are you here? Listen, in that presence of a holy God as purging takes root, it reveals our disobedience and lack of faith. It reminds us of what we've done. For Elijah, there was this pride. He wanted the big spectacular things. Remember, in chapter 17 and 18, all those miracles were huge stuff. I mean, any miracle is a big deal, right? I mean, this was a big deal, raising somebody from the dead. God multiplying flour and, and oil uh, of what God did in, in this confrontation with all these other prophets of Baal. I mean, these were big things. And I think Elijah had this pride that had built up. The truth that Elijah needed to hear, that he was prepared to hear now, was this. He wasn't supposed to be there. He was running from the threats of Jezebel. He'd messed up. He had messed up as God's prophet to the nation of Israel. He wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't supposed to be there. Jezebel easily took Elijah's eyes off the Almighty God. In Hebrews 12, the author writes this, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus, it says. That word fix means to gaze. It means don't let anything distract you. Keep it focused and narrow your vision. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you run the race. That's how you throw off the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance. That's how you do it. Sometimes we need a really good whooping out by the woodshed, don't we? I mean, you may want to admit it, but sometimes we just need a good whooping out by the woodshed. Elijah was getting a whooping up on that mountain. The wind and the fire and the earthquake. He was getting a whooping about God's almighty power. And now he was sensitive to that, hear that gentle whisper. I shared this story, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. My son who plays basketball over in, in Israel, when he was little, he was this strong-willed kind of child. You guys ever had a strong-willed child? Not if you had one of those. Not if you have one of those. Amen. Praise God. We all should have at least one of those, right? <laughs> I had a strong will. Jordan was strong-willed, independent, which has done him well now. He's been overseas for five years. I can always remember, one of the greatest things I remember about Jordan is this independence and him trying to learn how to ride a bicycle. Now, some, some people don't even know what a bicycle is anymore because nobody rides a bicycle anymore. But back in the day, that's what kids did. It was part of, of a dad's um, uh, responsibility to teach their sons how to ride a bicycle, right? So we go to the church parking lot, and it's big, and it's vast, and it's wide open. The only thing in the parking lot that could get in the way was about, I don't know, 200, uh, 150 yards on down there. There's this huge oak tree, right? 
that was never cut down. It was just in the parking lot. But it was a long way away. It wouldn't mess with us. So we're trying to teach him how to ride this bike. And he had a little thing. I held the back of his seat, and we'd start running. And, and of course, Jordan, like being Jordan, he just wanted to pedal so hard because he wanted to independent. He knew he could do it. Well, he didn't know how to do it yet. And so I'd be running around, and I'd start to let go. And, and, and I, then I wouldn't because he'd be real wobbly. And I said, hey, Jordan, you got to slow down. You got to slow down. I'm running out of breath. So I'm running this back when I was actually an athlete and could run. And I'm out of breath. And, and, and so we'd stop. We'd come back. And every time he wanted to pull away from me, and I knew in my heart he wasn't ready. Well, I was out of breath, and I was running again, and he just wanted to go. So as a good dad, I let him go. And then the death spiral started to take place. He got going, and for a minute, he was in heaven. It was like, yes, I've mastered this. And then he started that gentle turn, you know, that got tighter and tighter and tighter. And I'm starting to run. I know how this is going to end. It's not going to end well. And sure enough, the one thing that was in the parking lot, 150 yards away, he hits it head on. I mean, bends the rim on the tire, throws him for a loop. I couldn't get there quick enough. Moral of the story, (laughs) God many times is holding on to the seat. And he's saying, hey, keep your eyes focused on me. If you don't, there's a whooping that's going to take place. Now, his whooping was that big old oak tree. It got in his way. But for us, I don't know what that is for you and I, but we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because if not, this disobedience and lack of faith, we need to be purged from that within our lives. And here's number three, and we're done. A purpose took over in Elijah's life. Purpose is the revelation of God and reminds us of what we do. Now, let's remember, sometimes we look at this story and we think, oh, how cool it is that Elijah was on the side of the mountain and he had this encounter with the holy God and he, he put this veil over, he put this cloak over because he couldn't look at, at God because he was so holy. But let's not forget that Elijah was there. He wasn't supposed to be there. He'd messed up, right? I mean, how many times do we mess up in life? Whew, I'm glad I got a short memory because I mess up all the time. Now, I messed up as a dad. I can remember jumping to some conclusions that really weren't true, but, you know, I was a dad and, and we're going to just nip this in the bud. And Linda's over there in the corner going, hey, hey, you need to get the whole story. You need to get the whole story. And I was so quick, they just have a whooping by the woodshed because, you know, that's what my dad did. So let's just do it. There were times as a dad, man, I failed. There were times as a husband, I failed. There are times today as a leader, I continue to fail. And I want you to know, there is hope for every single one of us. Because I want you to know, God, when you messed up back in the Old Testament, it didn't go well, right? Did it go well for Moses? He disobeyed God just in one little act. God says, you know what, Moses? You're not going to go to the promised land. You're going to die on the side of this mountain. Elijah, you messed up. Probably shouldn't have ran in fear from Jezebel. I got you. I got this. If I'm for you, who can really be against you? There's a purpose that took root when you have this encounter with God. And to me, this is the most important point of all because we all mess up. And purpose is that revelation of God. And it reminds us of what we do and what did Elijah do? What did God tell him to do? There in verse 15, he tells him, Then the Lord said to him, Go! Don't stand here anymore. 
Don't sulk. Go. Go. And that's what we should do. James points this out in chapter 1. And he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Elijah was known as the prophet of doing. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. Acts 1, here is, here is Jesus. He's looking at his disciples. He says, I want you to know that very soon you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go. You're going to be my witnesses into the rest of this world to go. This is our impact point. This is it. When we mess up and we go through what we, we, we should go through in this purifying, this purging, and we come to this purpose, he will tell us to go. Don't sit any longer. Don't sulk. Let's go. There's still a job to be done. And then he tells them, secondly, to anoint. And I put down here, this is what he did. You can look here in verse, the end of verse 16, or 15, it says, it says, when you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel. You're to anoint Jehu. You're, you're to go over and anoint Elisha. And I put here that we need to be an influence. We need to go and we need to anoint. We need to be an influence in others' lives to help set them apart for the kingdom of God. As a dad, part of my responsibility, one of the joys I have in life, I have a son and and my daughter-in-law, they're giving birth to our first grandchild. And as proud as I am of having this grandchild, let me tell you what I'm more proud of, is I have a son who has grown up to be a man of God. I'm so proud of that. He's grown up to be a man of God. I had an influence, and his mom had an influence, and people within the church had an influence in his life. We're to go, we're to anoint, let's be an influence. And then he says in verse 18, to be steadfast. Louis says in 18, he says, But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, I want you to know, I'm going to leave a remnant but you're still going to be prophet to. You're still going to have an influence in. You're still going to go to, but you have to be steadfast. In other words, you have to live out your faith. The apostle Paul shares in, in a powerful sermon in 1 Corinthians 13. We don't have enough time for you to go there, but here is this discourse, if you will, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, and he's talking about this victorious resurrection of Jesus that it's defeated all these things. And he says, death has been swallowed up in this victory of Jesus. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? In other words, because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear any of that anymore. And then he says in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That word steadfast and immovable in the Greek, it literally means to sit and not be moved. Now, this is a picture I get. And this may have been your child. I don't know. But I've been in Walmart many times, and I'll see a two-year-old sit down in the middle of the aisle and have this temper tantrum, right? It is an act of God to get that child to do anything. They will sit there, and they are not getting up. I don't care how much you have to uh, try to persuade them. Or bribe them. Come on, we'll just get some candy. When they're in that state, they're immovable. They're not going to move. You have to physically take them up. And I didn't mean that in a bad way. Okay, you physically you take them up. And you love. No, you take them up. Immovable, steadfast. This picture that I am not going to be moved. So Rick, what's the point of all this today? What's your purpose as we mess up? 
And God has that opportunity to whisper into your ear, what's he whispering? Is he telling you to remove the distractions in your life? I want to tell you what, I battle that every single day during this time. Is he, is he telling you to stop running like Elijah did? Stop running and rather just fall into his arms? Is he telling you to repent and fix your eyes on him and not this world? Is he telling you to restore a relationship that has been broken? Is he telling you to open your heart and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? See, a true encounter with God, there'll be a purifying that takes place in your life. It has to. If you're going to hear from him, there has to be a purifying. And then there's this purging that takes place of what I've done. And then this purpose takes over. And it reminds me of what I have yet to accomplish, what God has yet in store for me. What does he have in store for us as the body of Christ? To go, to anoint, and to be steadfast. That's what he's challenged us with. 